1: Hello everyone, Stakuya here.
0: And I'm Gabby.
1: And welcome to, I guess it's more of an announcement before things actually begin with the podcast, but it's something rather exciting that we wanted to share with you.
0: We started a book club. Well... well,
1: well yeah, oh no, we did. We I did. Mean, yeah, it is. It's it's for all of us for it here. I mean, you listen to me tell stories all the time, so the fact that it's a audio book club is actually kind of great because, you know, I'm always telling you things, and so you listen...
0: Audiobook, podcast, it's the same thing.
1: It's literally the same thing, basically, except you usually have one person. I don't think there's an audiobook style where there's two people talking, but that would be very interesting.
0: I would like a romance audiobook style where there's like, wait.
1: (laughs) Gabby, you're making this into something very different, but... I wanted to talk to you about what we're doing here. So we're using a service called Chirp, which it's this audiobook club, and we're being sponsored by them, by Chirp Books, where it's this retailer that is known for making all these great deals without any commitments, no subscriptions, nothing. So the way that it's going to work, essentially, is that each month I'm going to announce a new kind of history book club pick that we're all going to be able to listen to together. And then at the end of the month you all are going to have the chance to share your thoughts on that book and see what other club members thought about it as well. So the way to get started if you want to join is go to chirpbooks.com slash history. Again, that's chirp like the sound that a bird makes chirpbooks.com slash history to follow my club and get a history of the world in six glasses for only three dollars for a limited time.
0: That's C-H-I-R-P-B-O-O-K-S dot com slash
1: history. I probably should have spelled it out rather than say what like a bird made.
0: You don't listen to podcasts and it shows. (laughs) Oh,
1: well, it is what it is. But anyway, by following my club, you're going to get exclusive access to join my book club discussion where you're going to see what other history of everything book club members think about the books and also share their thoughts, too.
0: In addition, we will be hosting book club discussion nights in Discord where after you've listened to the book, we all chat with Steven. I mean, you can chat with me too, but I don't really have much input.
1: <laughs> don't worry, I'll talk her off for all of us. She'll know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Patreon-exclusive episode of History of Everything. Welcome back, or I guess maybe for some of you the first time, Well, welcome to the podcast, my hoes. How are y'all doing here tonight?
0: They can't answer, Steven. Yes,
1: they can. They can because now they it's on Patreon, so they can put comments.
0: okay. They can fair. now do that. That's fair. That's fair. Yes,
1: they can actually answer how they're doing tonight. So if I don't see at least one comment telling me how you're doing tonight, I don't care if it's a good day or a bad... Wait, no, that sounds really awful. <laughs> I do care if you're having a good day. I would just rather you tell me this in the comment. Right. Okay, you know what? I'm getting really off topic here at this point. So what I'm essentially going to do, since now we have the option for comments, is that you are going to be able to put the comments for what it is that you want us to do below on Patreon. And my idea of this is, because this is something exclusively for Patreon, I'm going to take suggestions from the patron comments and determine from there what the next podcast episode is going to be on. So, I mean, I might think of something random, but in general, I want Ural's input for what it is that we're going to be doing. So let me know what it is that you would like to hear in the first place. So now, okay, oh my god, uh, we're talking about... <laughs> Do you remember the the first episode that we did, Gabby? Potatoes. Potatoes, yes, and their wacky and zany history. Okay. And
0: I did, in fact, say you cannot start a successful podcast with oh, the first episode being potatoes, but you did it, so congrats.
1: My Irish blood is so goddamn proud of me right now. I'm sure it is. Didn't the
0: potatoes go horribly for the Irish? Like, didn't you learn...
1: Okay, yes, but that's what happens with monoculture, which is effectively a death trap for any kind of nation. So when you are reliant on one kind of product overall, if anything happens to it, you're screwed. I believe that happened in South America to, uh, like, with Chile. It was either Chile or Argentina. Some country in South America, like, the majority of their GDP at one point in, I believe, the early 1900s was basically around cattle, and a cow disease came in and killed the majority of the economy. Like that.
0: Oh, that's really sad.
1: Yep, yep, that's, that. it's really bad. That's why monoculture and things like that, They can be very effective at making money in a short amount of time, but it's a very high-risk game, because stuff like that can happen. Anyway, if you don't remember our first episode that we did on potatoes, and all the little details and stuff that came in there, let me go ahead and give you a bit of a refresher. So tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, tobacco... All these different things these are members of the nightshade family and if that name doesn't strike a warning bell you might want to listen again because nightshade is a family of plants that are unique because they contain a small amount of alkaloids now alkaloids and mind you, I'm not a chemist this is this is literally me getting the definition of it here so don't hold me to this I know you're looking at me with some judgment Gabby
0: I'm not a chemist I don't care
1: alkaloids are chemicals that are mainly found in plants For something to be considered an alkaloid, it must contain nitrogen and affect the human body, usually from a medicinal perspective. But as we know in many cases throughout history, any amount of medicine can be poisonous if consumed in a large enough quantity.
0: Actually, that brings a really interesting topic off. So everyone's like, hey, this is toxic, everything's toxic. And like, yes, everything is toxic, but toxins have a level of toxicity. Even water is toxic at the right level dosage. You have to have the right dosage. But anyway, continue with your alkaloids.
1: You know, if you eat enough bananas, you will die of radiation poisoning. I think it was 50... I
0: think you would die just because you ate that many bananas.
1: 50,000 bananas under 10 minutes, I think it was. Right. But it's the radiation that's going to kill you, nothing else.
0: Sure, for sure.
1: (laughs) That's my favorite stupid fun fact from anything to throw around. It really is. Okay, but to... How do I even explain this with nightshade? So, it's a a rather famous example of nightshade and its poison came from the fact that, uh, say, hemlock is actually an example of nightshade, and that was used to execute the Greek philosopher Socrates. This is something that only a few leaves of it are required in order to kill an adult male, and that association with poison would follow the tomato and other plants around for centuries. So, in order to understand it, we really need to go back and look at the beginning. So the origin of the tomato plant is, we don't really exactly know, but we have an idea of it. It may have arisen in South America, together with, you know, the potato and tobacco, chili peppers, that kind of thing, and it slowly moved north until it was domesticated in the lands of Mesoamerica between Mexico and northern Costa Rica. This land was home to several pre-advanced like, pre-Columbian nations who flourished there until the arrival of the Europeans in the Age of Discovery. And, I mean, then we kind of know what really happened after that. Yeah. In fact, shameless plug time. I did a whole YouTube episode on what would have happened if, if uh, America was never discovered, so watch that if you want to. Shameless plug time. Okay. So during around 500 or 700 BC, one of those cultures managed to domesticate the tomato and integrate it into their cuisine. And from that point on, the tomato slowly spread across Central and South America being used as a food, but also in some cases and places being used as things like a hallucinogenic, like a hallucinogenic, and an aphrodisiac. Like some, they would eat the Did sea. they
0: use every single vegetable, fruit thing as an aphrodisiac? Like, were they that
1: I mean, you're talking about... This is pre-video games, Gabby. They got outlets. It's pretty much just blood and sex, and that's history.
0: I don't like it. That's
1: history. That's pretty much how it goes. No,
0: thank you. Yep.
1: All right. And so that whole thing with hallucinogens and aphrodisiacs, that, that would later be the cause of many of the misconceptions that people had about the vegetable. Which, yeah, if you don't get it right now, if you didn't know this, because this is something that still screws with people today, the tomato is actually not a vegetable. It's a fruit. A lot of people think it's a vegetable, but no, it's literally a fruit. It's actually a type of berry, which many many people don't realize, but it is.
0: I'm a whole scientist, and I did not know it was a berry.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a berry. Okay,
0: please define berry now. Since you're on this roll, finish this off.
1: We hold on. I don't remember the exact definition of the thing for the berry uh, well, for you. you can't
0: just make an empty claim, bestie.
1: Okay, don't catch me on. Okay, the reality of the thing with the berry is that uh, shoot, you no, know, I'm going to be talking out my ass if I do this in the first place. I just know when I remember okay. was verifying We're the take classification. A small cut
0: and we'll be right back with the definition of a berry.
1: Are you kidding me? Hold on. Do I have to look this up right now?
0: Make the small cut. <laughs> I don't like this
1: sound that's happening here. All right. Okay. So there we go. Why are you booing me? You're gonna
0: have to cut all of this out because you didn't cut it out when you should have.
1: Oh, it's fine. So, a berry in botany is a simple fleshy fruit that usually has many seeds, such as a banana, grape, and tomato. As a simple fruit, a berry is derived of a single ovary of an individual flower, together with droops and palms. Berries are one of the main types of fleshy fruits. So, because it doesn't have, like, a pit or anything like that, or a solid core or anything, or, or you know, like, a core with seeds and stuff inside it's of it, a berry. that's what constitutes it as a berry.
0: Okay, Mister History Man. You can Wait. So Mr. yeah, banana Stein, but...
1: bananas are berries too.
0: Stop. Bananas are berries, Gabby. I'm begging you to stop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, as we said, they're they're berries. As mentioned earlier, native groups like later on the Aztecs were primarily responsible for first understanding that the fruit was extremely versatile and used it as an ingredient in many different things for their cooking we even actually derived the word of from like tomato from the aztec word and i'm going to spell it out for you it's x-i-t-o-m-a-t-l which is pronounced g tomatel or tomatel, tomatel tomatel Oh, my God. I need to reach out to that one uh, uh, Nahuatl girl there on TikTok because she helps me with pronunciation of a lot of these things here. But G. Tomatel.
0: Or G. Okay. I believe you.
1: Oh, my God. I can see the look in your eye. You're You're, like, shining with laughter behind him. So, by the early 16th century, the Aztecs had domesticated a very large number of what we would kind of associate as modern tomatoes and there's early Aztec writings that reveal recipes for a dish that uses things like tomatoes, peppers and seasoning which can you guess what that is if you just combine it tomatoes peppers and seasoning mash it all together and put it together and what do you have salsa salsa exactly yes we're talking we're talking talking native american salsa so that's been around for literally hundreds of years so, the first European contact with the tomato came from Christopher Columbus, who possibly encountered it in 1493. But it was the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes who first saw the potential of the plant in the sacked city of the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan, and he took its seeds back to Europe there seeing that the tomato could grow without a problem in the warm mediterranean climate the spanish government really started to encourage its production in both europe and its distant colonies and as early as fi- the 1540s tomatoes started to be produced all over spanish fields and was used regularly as a common food in the early 17th century but other european countries did not adopt the tomato immediately
0: that's probably a good thing because when europeans find something they want to adopt immediately we 've seen what happened
1: I mean yeah but you remember what was going on with the potato for several hundred years before they actually managed to do anything <laughs> that's just kind of how I was it trying goes. to
0: think they don't like healthy foods mm-hmm. oh
1: my god no there's this whole thing for it here where they um they, there was there was a time in in Europe where they basically believed that vegetables would sap your strength
0: are you gonna explain that more or am I just gonna
1: no to we're just I'm just gonna leave it there just going to leave it there. You're going to leave all of us? Yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. Okay, for stuff. can you move?
0: I need to boo you okay, so right now, immediately.
1: <laughs> so that you can't boo me. <laughs> I'm going to make you work for your boos, Gabby. Because your only boo is here. It's me.
0: I can't even reach to boo you again. <laughs> continue, continue.
1: So, for example... Italian nobility and scientists found out about the tomato in like 1548, which is now famous, mind you, for their tomato and ketchup industry. But they only used it really as a tabletop decoration fruit until the 17th and 18th century. Just like, okay, remember I told you about that thing with the potatoes, how people really didn't want to eat the potatoes, but they really liked how flowery and beautiful the plants were, so they would just plant potatoes as decoration? Yeah. Yeah, they did the same thing with tomatoes, except if they put potato flowers outside, tomatoes went inside because they would use like the um, they would use the actual fruits of the tomatoes, like how we use apples and lemons and that kind of thing for you know fruit decoration. We do what? You know how people put like fake fruit, like those plastic fake fruit.
0: That was like a. Tw- Early 2000s style of decor.
1: Yes, and still some people do it, but that is a thing that was based off what people would do with real fruits. People used to do that, but with real fruits.
0: At least when you bit into those, you didn't get laughed at. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Um, okay, so they cherished these tomatoes' beauty. And so, the, again, they would use it as just like indoor house decor, just like in the kitchen table. That's just where it would go. And they they like to breed all these different tomatoes to make all different kinds of sizes and shapes and different kind of things. Like, they were just making decorative decorative tomatoes. Hey, everyone. Sakuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own.
0: I like that, actually, because tomatoes should be seen and not eaten. I'm lying. I love tomatoes. Potatoes, <laughs> tomatoes, yes.
1: And, it, and it's funny because in the beginning, the fruit was... They, they thought at first that it was a type of eggplant. And so they named it the the pomodoro or the pomodoro, which it, it's a combined word of essentially meaning the, uh, the golden apple, effectively, because they the initial tomatoes that were brought, they weren't red. Like the red tomatoes that we know of today were not the original tomatoes. The original ones were more yellow-ish. And then over time, with breeding and all the, what they found for marketing and all this other stuff, is that red tomatoes became the norm. But also, that's another famous little detail. The, with, in regards to the breeding of tomatoes, the modern tomatoes that we have, much like the banana, are not nearly as good as the tomatoes from like 200 years ago. They're not. They're just, they're not because the tomatoes from 200 years ago were significantly higher in sugar content. They actually, when you bit, like it was a sweet tomato, like you, it was a fruit that you could just bite into.
0: Am I jealous of people who lived that long ago?
1: Like that is the case, but with all the breeding and all the other things that they did, they, they prioritized less of the taste and more of what it would take for the market. Like for example, you could breed a tomato that was super tasty, but it might only last like three days. Meanwhile, you can put a tomato that maybe it's, you know, it's not, not, not anything all that special, mind you, but it, it'll last on the shelf for a week.
0: I'm literally so pissed right now.
1: I mean, that's the kind of the thing that that's what happens with markets. It's It's a balance between taste and longevity. That's really what it is. That's really what it is. And so you would think that with the tomato being introduced, that this was something that would absolutely revolutionize Italian cuisine. Because when you think of Italian cuisine, like, you're thinking of all these pasta dishes that are using tomatoes and other stuff, like, as a base, right? Yes. Okay. No. It was not really going until the late 18th and then into the 19th century that tomatoes became a real thing in Italy. So you might wonder, well, what were they doing with all their pasta? What what, what the was going on there? Let me
0: guess. They didn't like pasta.
1: No, I mean, they had the stuff here, but they primarily used, um like, olive oil and garlic as flavorings for stuff.
0: I don't hate that, actually, because I hate tomato sauce, so I will try that.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my god, no, we're going to get in a whole thing with the tomato sauce that it caused a whole other issue for why they thought it was poisonous. Like, that. That, genuinely speaking, that's one of the really big things here.
0: People are going to leave this episode so hungry for Italian food.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, again, it wasn't until the late 19th century that the modern-day tomato was firmly cemented in Italian culture. And they would use things like cheese and olive oil for flavoring until, you know, people had the bright idea of adding stuff like, you know, tomatoes for tomato sauce to make pizza and that sort of thing. Tomatoes received a very similar fate in England, where it was introduced in 1597, but it was viewed as unhealthy, poisonous, and unfit to eat both in England and its North American colonies. But that changed in the mid-18th century, after many advances in selective breeding from Spain and Italy that made it more palatable, I guess? Now, at this point, you may wonder, okay, why did people think that tomatoes were poisonous? So, a nickname for the fruit was the poison apple because it was thought that aristocrats would get sick and would die after eating them because that was actually a thing that would happen and so you think oh my god so tomatoes were actually killing nobles like what is that a thing
0: that's hilarious
1: yeah here's the thing you know how you have a really bad heartburn like you get it so easily and it comes on really strong
0: especially when i eat tomatoes
1: yes why
0: I'm stressed.
1: Yeah, no, wh- why? What is it about the tomato that causes the heartburn for you? It's acidic. Yes, exactly. All right. So because tomatoes were so high in acidity, when they were placed on particular tableware, the fruit would leach lead from the plates because the nobility would use things like instead of wood, they would use pewter. And pewter has a very high concentration relatively of lead in it. So the acidity of the tomatoes and the other foods that they would be eating on it would quite literally leach the lead off of the plates into the food that they would then eat. So tomatoes gave them lead poisoning by virtue of their tableware.
0: I I don't know how to respond to that.
1: I know, right?
0: That's just like the most roundabout way to get lead poisoning.
1: I know, So no one made the connection between the plate and poison at that time. Like, the tomato was picked as the culprit, and it took a while for people in the North to really understand that it wasn't the tomato that was giving everyone lead poisoning. It was me. Oh, that's a different path entirely. Okay, so after Europe... The naval path to the Philippines was used in order to take the plant uh, in order to take the plant to Asia, and, and it's actually funny. In Chinese culture, there are written records going back all the way till 1621 during the Ming Dynasty, where much like Italian culinary culture, China really took a decent amount of time to warm up to the fruit. In fact, the tomato's first records were more like a precaution. Written records tell of a Western-originated fan permesan or uh, permesin permis- persimmon. Parmesan cheese. Wait, it's persimmon, right? The persimmon fruit? That's what that is? Persimmon? Oh man, that's gonna mess with me in the first place. But anyway, they first thought that this was actually, again, a type of eggplant. And do you know what their name for it was? So the literal translation, if you want to be nice about it, it's foreign eggplant, right? That's the nice way. Do you know what the more literal translation for it was? Oh no. Barbarian eggplant. Because to the Chinese anything that was foreign was barbarian and filthy and beneath them. And that went for any kind of food or anything. So if I introduced you know, hey, hey, here's my uh, chicken recipe. They would go, ah yes, the barbarian chicken. Which honestly, actually that sounds like a really cool restaurant in the first place. Can I just say? Can we open up a restaurant that's just barbarian, like warlord themed?
0: No. Absolutely not. Because I don't like cooking. There's a whole job center around cooking.
1: (laughs) Okay, so although the tomatoes never rose to culinary prominence in the same way as they did in Italy, several regions in China became quite reliant on the use of tomatoes in their dishes. In fact, I think I actually saw something when I was doing research for this, and that is that China is the number one producer of tomatoes in the world. I think 24% of all tomatoes are grown in China. Which, I mean, in terms of food, that just kind of makes sense for having to do stuff like that. But, I mean, America is next, and I think Turkey... Is after that? Like, number three? There's a lot. In, or Italy and then Turkey, I think is what it is. There's a lot of tomatoes that are grown all around the world, and it's like a hundred-something billion tons of it are made. So, by the 19th century, tomatoes had officially migrated to most parts of Asia, and during this period, they also found their way into Syria and Iran. There, though, they were most widely used immediately. Like, there wasn't really any kind of hesitation. It was just like, oh, hey, here, here's the cool new fruit, and it actually works great on our salads and stuff and then it just worked so then the question you might have here in the end is all right we've talked about all these other parts of the world but what about america well here is where it gets particularly funny so the colonies of england for many years distrusted the fruit just like the mother country in the case of some of the more puritan populations this may have come from a similar belief to the french and that, and like that, their thing with the potato, and that it was an aphrodisiac. And they certainly wouldn't want to offend their morals by that. But you might ask, okay, well, why would they think that? Well, that is possibly because the French name for the tomato was the pomme d'amour, or the love apple. Some Aztecs, as we said, said previously had used tomato seeds as an aphrodisiac in the first place but and so this might be true but also the funny thing is that the french name might have been a mishearing or mistranslation because it could have come from pomme de moore which is the apple of the moors as in like morocco that sort of thing because the spanish being the ones you know to introduce the fruit in the first place to everyone else Despite originating in the Americas, the tomato did not actually become mainstream in the United States until Thomas Jefferson took an interest in the plant. Which, yes, I'm, I'm talking that Thomas Jefferson, you know, third Why? president. Well, th- this is where a whole story comes in. And this is kind of a myth going along the lines of, you know, Washington and the cherry tree. But also this this one is actually more realistic. It, you could take it as a kind of thing like Mary Antoinette and what they did with potato publicity in France. Which, if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch or listen to that first podcast episode because it is a whole thing. But basically, the, the gist of it here is that... Thomas Jefferson was this connoisseur of food, and so his taste in exotic vegetables and fruit were on full display in his garden. So what he would do, right, is that in Lynchburg, Virginia, which was built in 1791, it was locally referred to as the Tomato House because Jefferson first shocked people of the region by publicly consuming a tomato in this location. And To the crowd's amazement that was watching, he didn't die. Or at least, you know, that's kind of the myth. People had really been eating tomatoes in the United States since the mid-1770s or so. It just seems that Jefferson was one that, I mean, I guess this kind of works with trends. You can have a thing that is kind of a thing, right, Gabby? But then as soon as someone famous does it, then it really becomes a thing. Because then more people start trying to imitate.
0: Center parts. I'm actually pissed about that because my nose is weird and center parts just don't work for me.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, that that's really the thing. So he didn't make it. He wasn't like the first, but he was probably one of the first people to really popularize it for people in the first place. He was
0: an influencer.
1: Yeah, Thomas Jefferson was an influencer.
0: He was literally a food blogger.
1: No, literally. It's, he might as well have been. He wrote extensively about all this stuff.
0: Oh my god. Influencers have always been a thing, and that's what I was saying today.
1: (laughs) But other places around the United States, they took longer. The north of the United States is a key example of that. So in the 1820s, you had this colonel by the name of Robert Gibbon Johnson, who went onto the streets of New Jersey and further proved the point by just eating tomatoes in front of people to show people that it wasn't harmful because I think he was trying to sell them or someone else was convincing him that they needed help to try and sell them. So he was just eating tomatoes in front of people to show that, hey, these are literally harmless. There's like no big deal. So he didn't die. Yay. Yeah. And so by the 1830s, there was a new concern because now, okay, the tomato is not an aphrodisiac. We think, I guess, actually, wait, are there studies on that? I don't think that that is a thing, but either way, either way, The tomato is not an aphrodisiac, it's not poison, so there's nothing wrong inherently with the fruit. But a new concern came out of all these farms in New York, the green tomato worm. So it measured only about three to four inches in length with a horn that was sticking out of its back. And that began taking over all these different tomato patches across the state. And it was believed, like there was this, I'm going to call it folklore, I guess, a rumor. But essentially people believed that if you even brushed against this worm, just touched it, it would be instant death. Like they actually had this description: the tomato in all of our gardens is infested with a very large, thick-bodied green worm with oblique white sterols along its side and a curved thorn-like horn at the end of its back. So basically, that horn—you you touch it, like venom dead. Like that's what would happen. So people were so scared of it, they called it an object of terror. It was regarded as being poisonous. At one point, a guy actually caught one of the worms and then he went to the newspaper basically say, saying that this was as poisonous as a rattlesnake which is that's the wrong term in the first place it's venomous as a rattlesnake but that's besides the point that's that's what he stated Deadly to me
0: as a rattlesnake
1: yes but that's what he said and so he said apparently that once he captured it that the the worm started spraying spit everywhere at him like you know you know, like a like a lizard that sprays blood out of its eyes, like the horned lizard. But basically, this was a worm that you try and catch it, and it's just going to spit at you. And that anywhere that that spit made contact with his skin, it would just cause it to swell up. Uh, and that a few hours later, the victim would seize up and just die. And that's just what would happen.
0: That's a bit dramatic.
1: No, it's very dramatic. It's very dramatic. <laughs> so they titled it "The New Enemy to Human Existence." which i mean this is yellow journalism at its finest but that that is what it was going on and then a couple botanists came in and a couple you know etymologists and they were just like that that's not a thing the hell are you talking about that's not a thing and so they debunked it so by the year 1835 tomatoes were available in the markets of boston and when the civil war broke out a few decades later tomatoes became very important. So tomatoes were were marketable, but they didn't become nearly as big in demand until the Civil War. Because the Union Army, in order to supply its troops, they relied on canneries to produce tomatoes For easy access to nutrition, tomatoes would become the most popular product sold in cans during the Civil War, and there were, you know, great effects from this. Farmers realized, like, hey, wait a minute, hold on, the military is buying up so many of these cans because they need tomatoes. So what are we going to do? Let's grow tomatoes. Because then they're going to make more money because that's really what's in demand. It was one of the easiest things to can, they lasted a long time when you did that, and it was perfect for soldiers, and we're, they're in a period of war for like four years.
0: So they just ate tomatoes?
1: Well, I mean, you would put it with other stuff, but canned tomatoes was a very effective thing that you could, you know, take, right? And so they switched over from other crops to tomatoes. By 1897, the innovator, Joseph Campbell, figured out like how to keep tomatoes well-kept and canned and popularized condensed tomato soup
0: oh my god campbell that soup. is campbell
1: soup 1897 baby that's when that came into being
0: that's amazing
1: yep and it originated not with chicken noodle soup but tomato soup that that was the original
0: and that's what you missed on glee
1: yep and from there the rest is history and honestly, that, that's really it. It's not nearly as many stories as what happens with the potato, but it's just one that I wanted to talk about. And there's so many other fruits and vegetables and foods and all different kinds of things that have their own weird, unique Should history. Should
0: we rename it the history of fruits and vegetables?
1: <laughs> that sounds so niche. I would go from the history of everything to just fruits and vegetables. What am I, a crunchy podcaster?
0: You're just so passionate about food
1: okay yes have you seen the size of me
0: hey (laughs) hey don't come on buddy buddy you 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 got it you gotta flaunt it king anyway yeah that was a Uh, thought Oh my God. I did
1: applause, you know, because you're going to give me a moment right there. So I got to do something.
0: Okay. Thanks for listening, you guys.
1: I will see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening to me here on this podcast. And thank you so much for being a patron and a supporter.
0: Please let us know what other topics you want to see because Steven gets completely, Stack gets completely overwhelmed with what he. Wants to write about because there's just so much, but he doesn't know what you guys want to hear. So let us know what you want to hear because when we make these little podcasts for you guys, the bonus episodes are literally for you. So let us know what you want to know.
1: Correct. Anyway, I will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. And goodbye, my podcast host.
0: Oh my God. You just love saying that.
1: Okay, you're my patron host. Wait, so do I call him daddy? Like Padre? Okay, anyway, we're going to end it right here. Bye, guys. (laughs) Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance.